Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live Saturday mornings from 9 till 10. Find us online at federalnewsnetwork.com or hear us on the radio in the Washington, D.C. area on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, and 1039 FM HD 2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. Well, this was the big week of Pi Day. We'll give a little bit of the history of Pi. Of course, March 14th is Pi Day because 314 are the first three digits of Pi. And this week we celebrated the 30th anniversary of the World Wide Web. That's right, yeah. Tim Berners-Lee first proposed it back in uh, back quite a while ago, 30 years ago, and we'll talk about that story. In fact, we're going to feature Tim Berners-Lee today on our Profiles in IT. He has an interesting story. Yeah, IBM was caught using uh, photos from the Internet for facial recognition research without getting any permission from anyone. And we'll talk a bit about the software update on the 737 Max. You know, everything, even though it's an aeronautical problem, in the end, it's the software controls that are driving everything. And somebody proposed a new kind of drive, a halo drive, that will get energy from black holes so you don't have to carry around a lot of fuel. It's an interesting idea. We'll we'll talk about it and, uh, and much, much more. And today we've got a lot of emails. There is a big mailbag. Mm-hmm. There's a letter in your mailbox. Oh, there yeah. Go. We got an email from Dennis in Kansas. Dear Tech Talk, I've been using Dropbox free for many years, but it limits me to only three devices and on two gigabytes of storage. There must be better options for me if I want to keep if I want to keep using cloud storage but not pay anything. Well, Dennis, you do have a lot of options. Um, I mean, eventually, I think you will have have to start paying something. But here are your free options. Quite a few of them are out there. You've got Google Drive. Now, Google Drive is pretty good. It offers 15 gigabytes of free storage. It's a lot of storage. Mm -hmm. Now, you share that with your Gmail account, and you can connect to an unlimited. You can sync it to an unlimited number of devices. Now, the other nice thing is that Google Backup and Sync software lets you easily back up and sync, fo- sync folders other than the Google Drive folder. So you can use it as, as sort of a general backup location. Now, it's also integrated with Google Docs, so you can easily work with Google Docs and store them on the Google Drive. It's, it's a nice ecosystem. They provide apps for Android, iPhone, and iPad. And you can access, of course, your files anywhere with a browser and a regular computer. So that's not a bad deal. Microsoft OneDrive also has a lot of free storage. Microsoft OneDrive gives you 5 gigabytes of free storage. Now, it's convenient because it's built right into Windows 10. It has what they call files on demand where it will store your files on the cloud while, and it will show them in the, in the um, file explorer. And then when you click on them, it will download it from the cloud and put it right on your PC. So it's a very... It's a very convenient way to operate it. Microsoft has clients for the Mac OS. 
They have clients for Android, the iPhone, and the iPad. So that's not a bad option. Now, of course, we've got Apple iCloud Drive. <clears throat> they offer five gigabytes of free storage, and you can back up uh, all your photos and files, and there are no limit on the number of devices. Now, the iCloud is built into the Mac operating system, but they also have a client for Windows, so you can actually have an iCloud client for Windows. Not a bad option. Now, if you actually want to start paying for paying for storage that uh, they have not that you you can actually do that and it's not too expensive dropbox for instance is going to charge you 99 dollars for one terabyte of storage google drive will tar charge you a one nine uh, google drive will charge you a dollar 99 uh for per month for 100 gigabytes and they'll charge you $99 a year for two terabytes of storage. Microsoft OneDrive will charge $69 for Office 365 personal, 365 personal, plus they give you one terabyte of storage, as well as Microsoft Office. Now, Apple charges $0.99 cents per month for 50 gigabytes of storage, or $9.99 per month if you want to get two terabytes of storage. So... Actually, cloud storage is getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And I've got to admit, I use all of those services. I've used them all. They're there. I get as much free storage as I can get. <laughs> we got an email from Dan in Kansas. Dear Doc and Jim, I have a vintage whole house audio system, and it's powered with a 200-watt stereo amplifier. And the system was installed before Wi-Fi or streaming music, and it's got an antiquated way you know, to activate the music and get it over the whole house. I'd like to stream Pandora over the whole house. You know, I currently, uh, you know, have a few echoes in the house, and I, I do stream music through the echoes, but I'd like to use my all the speakers that are installed in the house. What, what do you think my best option is? Dan in Pittsburgh, Kansas. Well, Dan, since you've already invested in the Amazon Echoes, I, you know, you're in the, you know, you're in the Echo, Amazon Echo, you know, ecosystem. You might as well stick with Amazon. Now, you can, what you need to get is a wireless preamp. This would be a device that would hook to Wi-Fi, and then you can stream, uh, stream uh, music through that wireless preamp. And then you just plug the preamp into your amplifier and distribute it through the whole house. And, and so you'd, you'd, you'd plug it into there just, just like you'd plug in, a, say, a CD player in, into, your, into your amplifier. And you just have to make certain you got the right input, input port set up so it... So it then goes out over the whole house. Now, Yamaha and Sonos make um, make preamps, wireless preamps, where you can stream music, but they're they're around three hundred and fifty dollars. You've got a pretty good preamp that's put out by Amazon. They've got the Amazon Echo Link preamp. It's it's around two hundred dollars, and um, and you can you know you can use the you can use the smart home app that doesn't have a microphone in it. So what you'll have to do is. If you've got other echoes in the house, you can you can activate that using the other echoes, or you could activate that streaming using the uh, the Amazon Echo app, and then you could you could turn it on. But that's not a bad option. It's uh, it's sort of like a you know it's, it's sort of like a uh, uh, it's it's like it's, it it basically it, it's it operates just like an echo, and you can just uh, plug it in with a wire into the preamp, and it's got enough power to drive that amplifier and it's got really good sound quality now you also as another plug you could also plug in a cd player you could plug in a record player into this into this amazon echo link preamp and you could actually use your app to switch between them if you wanted to use that as a sort of a mini 
many receiver deals, so you could do it all remotely. So it's a pretty good option. We got an email from Lois in Kansas. Dear Doc and Jim, recently a friend of ours died, and his family's having trouble taking control of his Facebook account. I don't want that to happen to me. How do I specifically, what do I do with my Facebook account if something happens to me? How, How can I sort of plan for that? Love the show, Lois in Kansas. Well, Lois, Facebook gives you two options for such an eventuality. You can choose to either delete your account when you die or you can have it memorialized. These are the two choices. In the case of a memorialized account, what you do, you leave somebody in charge of your account to make certain that it's curated. And then after you're gone, your friends and family can get together. They can share memories of you. They can post things on that and talk about you after you're gone. The only, but the name of the site is going to be remembering and then your name, like remembering Lois. And then you have to have somebody who would curate it. So in order to set up your account so that it can be memorialized after you pass away, you need to appoint a legacy contact. This would be a friend or a family member who you trust and who would take care of your wishes. To set up a legacy contact, you first open settings in Facebook, then click on security, and then click on legacy contact. Now you simply appoint a friend to serve as your legacy contact. Now your legacy contact will not get any powers over this site until you're officially gone. Somebody's going to have to make a request. They'll send something to Facebook, either a, a, a proof that you've died, like an obituary, obituary, a copy of the death certificate. And at that point, control will be transferred over to your legacy person. Now, another option, of course, is just to have the account deleted. And you can simply, when you when you pass away, your account is deleted. And in that case, you'd simply, you could set up that. You simply go to security and then contacts. And then instead of uh, getting a memorial contact, you just put down request account deletion at that, at that point. And then after you've passed away, someone will simply notify Facebook that you've died. They'll send your uh, death certificate or obituary, and then Facebook will actually totally <coughs> delete the account. So those are the two options, and you really want to do that before something happens to you. Otherwise, it just goes into never-never land. We got an email from Lynn in Orlando. Dear Tech Talk, I frequently work from home and need to set up conference calls. I only have an iPhone at home. Is there any kind of service that I could use for conference calls? Love the show, Lynn, in Orlando. Well, Lynn, your iPhone will let you set up a conference call with up to five people. It's really easy to do. Other people don't need anything special. They just either a cellular phone or a landline phone. So all you have to do to set this up to start your conference call is you call the first participant just using your regular phone dialer. And then if you look at the... uh, you know, at the screen on your uh, on your iPhone, there's going to be a button called Add Call. So you you tell this person you're going to add somebody and you're going to put them on hold. So you click Add Call, puts the current person on hold. You call the second person, and then after you get contact with them, you click another button, which is which shows up on the dialer, which is Merge Call. So you click Merge Calls, and then those two people are together. Then if you want to add a third person. You simply click Add Call. Those two are put on hold. You call the third person, and then you merge that. And you can go through that process until you have five people, five people on the call. I mean, five people including, yeah, five people on the call. So it's very easy to do, and um, and then you don't need any complicated conferencing software. We got an email from Tung in Ohio. Dear Tech Talk, I have a new Mac computer, and it uses a Bluetooth mouse, and I can't seem to connect my Bluetooth speaker on at the same time. I, 
I'm listening to some audio files that my sister sent me, and I can't get the mouse and the speaker working all at the same time. Maybe Bluetooth doesn't support two devices. Maybe it only supports one device at a time. I'm trying to figure this thing out. Please help me. Love the show, Tung, in Ohio. Well, Tung, um, a single Bluetooth device can communicate with up to eight different devices that are within 30-foot radius. Now, Bluetooth 4.0 randomly chooses from 40 frequencies, and it randomly chooses those 1,600 times a second in order to minimize interference between these all these various devices. So you should have no trouble connecting to the speaker and the mouse at all. Should be no problem at all. More than likely, your speaker is connected to something else. Maybe your speaker is connected to your iPhone, and if it's connected to your iPhone, it will not connect to your computer. So you need to disconnect it from your iPhone. Now, what you could do just to force that, you could turn off your iPhone. You could turn off anything else that the, that the Bluetooth speaker might be connected to. So the only choice it has is your Mac. And at that point, the Mac should discover it. You put it in discovery mode, the Mac should discover it, and you can, you can attach to it. So I don't think you should have any problems here. But uh, best of luck and email back if it doesn't work. Listen, we love your emails. You can email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network at 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2. You can watch us do the show by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Timothy John Berners-Lee. He goes just by Tim. Tim Berners-Lee. Mm-hmm. Is a computer scientist who's best known as the inventor of the World Wide Web. Tim Berners-Lee was born June 8, 1955 in London, England. 
He attended the Sheen Mount Primary School, and then he went to the Southwest London's Emanuel School. They sound exclusive to me. Yeah, and he graduated from high school there from the Emanuel School. In 1976, he received a Bachelor of Arts in Physics, first class, from Queen's College in Oxford. Now, while he was at the university, he, he made a computer out of an old television set. He liked to tinker with electronics. By the way, when he was a... You know, at home in grade school, he, he had an electric train set. He used to tinker with that. He learned a lot about of electronics with the uh, electric train set. He sort of loved trains. They called him a train spotter. He'd go out and he could recognize all the old engines that were going around the countryside there in England. Now, after graduation, Tim worked as a telecom engineer for Plessy in Poole, Dorset. In, seven, in 1978, he joined the DJ Nash Company and he created uh, typesetting software for printers. Then in 1980, he worked as an independent contractor for CERN. This is the, uh, this is the European research group that's actually running the Large Hadron Collider there in Geneva. So he worked as an independent contractor for CERN in Geneva. And while he was there, they, they were having trouble with – they had all these scientists who had all these, these reports and pictures and graphs. They were trying to share stuff. And he developed a way for them to share material locally within CERN. And he used he basically used the concept of hypertext where you click on a name which is linked by hypertext and it takes you directly to the file which might be in another computer. So he, he was this allowed them to share files with each other using hypertext links without having to like send the files by email to, you know, transfer the files back and forth. It made it for a very, very, very good way for the scientists to collaborate. So this was the first sort of piece of really what the World Wide Web is. But this was only just locally within CERN. It was just for the local way to share documents. Now, the system it developed was called Inquire, Inquire. And, um, and it worked really well. The, the researchers there loved it. Then he left CERN in 1980, and he went to work for John Poole's Image Computer Systems in Bournemouth. And there he worked on real-time remote procedure calls. And these are, of course, where you basically send a command over the Internet, and you remotely execute that command on another computer. That's called a remote procedure call. And so it turned out that it, as he was working on this remote procedure call project there at the John Bull's image computer systems, he actually learned how to use the Internet, how to, how to write code that, that, that could have the TCP IP protocol stack in it, and he was able then to write a networked application. This was a key piece in the development of the World Wide Web. So he, he developed that coding ex expertise while he was there working on that remote time, remote procedure call. In 1984, he returned to CERN as a fellow now, CERN at that time was the largest Internet node in Europe. And Tim Berners-Lee, uh, Berners he saw an opportunity to link his Inquire system or his shared documents to the Internet to make something like a global uh, document resource center where you could like to link to documents anywhere in the world. And on March 12, 1989... Tim Berners-Lee submitted a proposal to build this, to take and, take and add TCP IP protocol stack to his Inquire 
system, document sharing system. He wrote a proposal in 1989, sent it to his his boss. See, he said he he submitted the proposal March 12, 1989. That was 30 years ago. That's what we're celebrating the submission of the proposal. And his boss looked at it. He said, "Well, this looks interesting," and he. He, let, he put it on his desk, didn't do anything. And, he, and then Tim Berners-Lee resubmitted it in 1990, January, and his boss looked at it again. He said, okay, Tim, it looks interesting. And, um, and so he decided to, um, to implement it. And it was, it, was a very simple, it was a very simple proposal. It was called, the title of the proposal was Information Management. It, there wasn't world the, the idea of World Wide Web. Then it was information management. How you can link to computers to, to in, in other um, you know in, uh, how you can link to documents that are that are in computers that are in a different location. So then he started working on this thing, and um, and all he did he just took the hypertext idea, connected it to the transmission control protocol, which is the protocol of the internet, and with that he created the World Wide Web. Now he didn't really know what to call this thing. And so they were just sitting around in the, the cafeteria talking about it. And he came and said, well, let's just call it the World Wide Web. And uh, everybody said, yeah, that sounds pretty good. So that's what they did. And most of the technology that he used was there. The, he had already developed hypertext when he did the Inquirer back in 1980. Uh, we had uh, multi-font text objects. They'd all, they were available, which is what you want to do when you display when you display a web page. So all the different pieces, TCP IP protocol was all there. So every, all the pieces were there to put this thing together. And all he had to do was create a way to, uh, to link them. And, um, and he just generalized the basic idea of document management and, and from being a local document management system there at CERN to being a global document, document management system. And he had to have a way to address all these remote locations. And he invented then... Web addresses. So the first website was created at CERN, and that website is info.cern.ch, info.cern.ch. And you can go to that actual website now, and it will show you what the original website looked like. It's still up there. You know, it's, it's still up there for historical purposes. And that went live. That first website at CERN went live August 6, 1991. So the World Wide Web grew from that point, and it just took off like gangbusters because all of a sudden it made the Internet accessible to anyone because anybody could get a document and click on a word and then go to someplace else. So you didn't have to have any programming language to use it. The World Wide Web made the Internet accessible to just the common man, mm -hmm. and that's when everything took off. Now, in, Tim, in 1994, Tim Berners-Lee founded the World Wide Web Consortium. They call it W3C because there are three W's, World Wide Web Consortium. W3C, he, he formed that at MIT, and it was really a collection of companies that wanted to standardize the web. And the basic idea was that all of the software behind the web all the technology behind the web should be royalty-free technology. They wanted to make this available to everyone. And the World Wide Web Consortium would create standards, like web standards, HTTP standards, web standards, that would then be implemented by anybody that would make a browser. So that standardization developed by W3C was extremely important to the growth of the web.
In December of 2004, he accepted a position as chair of the computer science department at University of Southampton, and he started working on the semantic web. This is where you you basically link you 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 basically use language and you link concepts together semantically, um, and it's a, it's another way to organize information. So back then they were thinking maybe this is a better way to organize information using this semantic web. Now. In an interview, have you noticed that that on the web address, it, if you you do HTTP colon, you got two slashes, two slashes in the web address. Right. Well, Tim Berners-Lee admitted that there was no point for the two slashes. He just said it looked pretty at the time, <laughs> and he wishes he never would have done it because he could have done it without the two slashes. He could have just done HTTP colon and had the web address. The two slashes weren't necessary because I'm always wondering, should, the, should they be forward slashes or backward slashes? I or, think the same thing. Yeah. You know, so you wonder. And I mean, either one works. But but they, but he says, you know, they really weren't needed. He said that looked pretty at the time. And he's he kind of apologized for it in the article, get, you know, putting that in. But he says, now it's in the standard. It's too hard to get rid of it. <laughs> in November of 2009, Berners-Lee launched the World Wide Web Foundation. Now, this had a different goal than the consortium. The consortium was like standardization of standards, create standards for uniformity for all browsers and everything. So everything interlinks and works together. The World Wide Web Foundation was trying to take the power of the Internet to empower humanity by leveraging the web as a medium for pos positive change. So he was the, – the, the mission of the foundation is to basically – get the World Wide Web in developing countries and help, through the spread of information, help change the world, empower humanity. So that's that's a different goal. He is very much um, into using his technology that he develops not to make money, but rather to make a difference. Tim Berners-Lee not, has not been chasing big IPOs and big money. He's been making, he's been chasing standards and trying to do things that will have an impact to the world using the World Wide Web. Now, he, as you would expect, he is in favor of net neutrality completely. And he's expressed the views that ISPs, Internet Service Providers, should simply provide connectivity with no strings attached. Just provide that connectivity. And he's one of the big proponents of net neutrality. In 2016, he had joined the Department of Computer Science at Oxford University. In 2018, he announced a new application made by an open source startup, Enrupt which he's part of, and it's, it's the, the product is called Solid, and it's designed to give users more control over their personal data. His current focus is privacy. He thinks that the large Internet companies like Facebook, Google, uh, Microsoft, Apple, all have too much user data. Users do not have control of their data, and he wants to set up a standard where users actually control their data. And if they want to delete it, the standard will automatically let them delete their own data no matter where it's located. So this is a new technology, open source technology startup Enrupt, and Enrupt, and it's and it's called Solid. It's the name of the software to give users more control over their personal data. I think this is real a real important point going forward. In 2017, he received the 2016 ACM Turing Award for his work on the World Wide Web. He's had a huge impact on the World Wide Web. I think he was at the right place at the right time. CERN mm -hmm. had a problem. They had to share documents. CERN was 
the number one Internet node in Europe. So he just put the two ideas together and invented the World Wide Web. And there you go, everything you needed to know about Timothy John Berners-Lee. Happy birthday to the interwebs. Yes. So we are. you're listening to uh, Tech Talk Radio here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, heard over the radio, over the air as we call it, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2. We're having trouble with the stream today. However, I noticed, Doc, on the Periscope app that people are talking about the uh, stream being down, so they've switched over to Periscope, so people are finding us. Ah, so, the, so that's very good. So tell your friends, if they, if they normally listen on the stream, download the Periscope app to your device and follow us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Russ, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. You can sit down, let's control yourself here. Have you noticed we've had a larger studio audience here in the new studio? It's because There's of the... It's, more real estate. It's more real estate, and also it's because the the, the big celebration of the 30th uh, birthday of the World Wide I Web, they're all here for that. that has a lot to do with it, yes. Yeah, that's right. So earlier in this year, this is not simply a radio show. No. It's, a, it's a classroom of the airways, yes. and we have to make an assessment to see whether our students have been paying attention. If you get, and we do that with a pop quiz, you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll win tickets to fine dining at one of our Stratford University dining rooms. Earlier in the show, I talked about Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web. Where was Tim Berners-Lee working when he invented the World Wide Web? He invented the browser, the invented the everything. Question, well, Sorry, he stepped all over you. you. pick up the phone and give us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. 
calling from East of Playadale Shirts, Virginia. It's 877-936-9333. If you're basking in the warm March sun in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. And of course, the international line, 877-936-39333. Once again, here's Dr. Richard Church. And, of course, if you want to reach us from inside the La- Large Hadron Collider, you can connect on Skype. Simply connect to Tech Talk Radio 1, and your call will be forwarded to the studio free of charge. Andrew Mitchell, our adjunct professor for prize distribution and crowd control, standing by to take your calls. So, dial now. There you go. Now, IBM has been using Flickr photos for facial recognition training. Now, IBM took nearly a million photos from Flickr. This is a site where photographers upload their upload their pictures, uh, and they, they hope to sell them. And uh, it turned out IBM pulled about a million pictures from Flickr, and the people who were photographed in those pictures had no idea that their faces were being used as part of a facial recognition training system. Mm. Now, the photographers did get permission to take the pictures, but... The people just thought their images were just, you know, you know, just be used in a magazine or something. They didn't, they didn't know they would be part of this massive uh, face recognition um, research project. Now, the photos were part of a larger collection of 99 million photos known as YFCC100M <laughs> that the former Flickr owner, Yahoo, originally put together to conduct research. Now, each Photographer initial, originally shared their photos under the Creative Commons license, which is typical the way they, they do things, but they just didn't know about this particular application. Now, IBM said that uh, th- they did everything that was legal, and they said if anybody wants to opt out, they can. But first of all, nobody really knows how to do that or who to talk to or where to go. There's no page for opting out. So, um, I mean, but this is done by a lot of guys. Even Facebook has 800,000 photos that they use for for face recognition research. So I th- I think we've got to find a better way. This gets back to this whole privacy issue that Tim Berners-Lee was talking about. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk about uh, this Boeing 707 or Boeing 737 MAX control system. This is an interesting story. They're, they're going to have to update the software on this particular plane. I mean- that, so- that sounds like well, this isn't a structural problem with the airplane. This is a computer problem, right? Well, okay. it's a bit of a structural problem in a way. What what um, what Boeing has done is that they keep modifying the 737. The 737 has been around for a long, long time. The 737 has been around for a long, long time, and they keep modifying it because it, it's, it's easier to get approvals if you modify it. Ah, it yeah. goes back to the days— when they when they when they actually brought stairs up to the airplane and you walk down stairs, really, it it goes back to the days before they had these conveyor belts for luggage and the guys had to lift the luggage onto the flight. So it had to be very low to the ground, mm-hmm. very very low to the ground. And so what what has happened is that you know now since then we now have these ramps. So the newer planes don't have to be so low to the ground. And they've had to modify the structure because the engines get bigger and bigger and bigger. The original engines were only 49 inches in diameter, and they're like long cigars. The new engines are 69 inches in diameter, Mm -hmm. and that meant that the engine would hit the ground. And so they had to raise the wings up, and they had to distort the – and they had to sort of flatten the the bottom of the the, uh, the, uh, engine cover, and they had to raise the wings up. 
in order to get the engine so they wouldn't hit the ground. And what happened was this made the 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 plane aerodynamically off center and it tends to the nose tends to go up if it just is normally in a normal interesting drift state. So what they did, they used software to to compensate for that nose up problem and the software then pushes the nose ah, down. Ah, okay. And so but but then the but then there are sensors that are constantly monitoring this because the plane will not glide straight unless it's actively managed because it's out of balance because they've used the same frame over and over again. They, they, so you truly cannot put this thing in manual mode then? No. Well, you, can, it, you, you, well, you could, but it would, you, you would really be flying it. now. And so what's happening— I mean in automatic mode. You can't put it in a true automatic autopilot situation, no, can no, you? They, no, it, it has an autopilot. Okay. And all the software knows about these tendencies, but that it's all, it's all dependent on these sensors that, uh, that are sensing the, uh, the airflow and the tilt. And it turned out if the sensors are incorrect, then it goes into a nosedive. And that's what was happening. So that's what happened in that first flight in Thailand. So this in happens Thailand. when but, but, it's in autopilot is when this happens. When it's in autopilot. And so and it, and what's particularly dangerous during takeoff, yeah. if during takeoff it thinks that the, the, the glide sensors are wrong, it, it, it pushes the plane down and you've got no altitude. And so the pilots were fighting this. And so the, so the question is – and this is the question. They're, they're, they are going to put in a software control here, a software fix that is going to go through and try to detect bad sensors and not do something that's wrong. Now, had these pilots been experienced, they would have automatically taken it out of autopilot mode They because there's, there's just a button right in the, in, in the steering wheel. They can push that button and take it out of autopilot. So an experienced pilot, like in the U.S., if the autopilot all of a sudden is acting weird, you take it out of autopilot and take over. And I think it was the problem with the pilots in these other crashes. They were not experienced, and they didn't take it out of autopilot, and they tried to fight the autopilot. So, and, and so, so it was a bit of a training problem, plus I think it's a software problem, but I think the core problem is they didn't start from scratch, and they kept trying to use the same airframe over and over and over you again. Know, then that's really one of the things about aviation is experience is huge, pilot experience, because once they've seen something and they know how to get out of it, but when you're in that mode – and something happens, and you you might lose your cool, and and that's when things go bad. That's right. And so you know, had these guys simply taken it out of autopilot, they'd have just they'd have just taken just off. flown the airplane. They'd yeah. just flown the airplane, but they didn't know to do that. And 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 an experienced pilot, as soon as the autopilot begins to act up, the first thing they do is take it out of autopilot. Yep. yep. And so it was really, I think, a pilot training thing. So the system that uh, that. That Boeing developed this MCAS system, which is designed to offset this this problem that it tends to steep up, is what they developed. So they're going to do a software fix, and hope they're hoping that this software fix is going to make the plane stable. But I think they've reached a point now with that airframe that the next one's going to have to be, be a, a, bra a brand a brand new design. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Guess what? The phones are working today. Oh, that's very good. Let us go to line one. We are talking to Lewis in Rockville, Maryland. Lewis, good morning. How are you, sir? Lewis? Wait a minute. Good. There we go. Good morning, Lewis. How are you, Lewis? Yeah, earlier in the show, we talked about Tim Berners-Lee. Of course, he's the inventor of the World Wide Web. Where was he working when he invented the World Wide Web? 
Sirs. Correct. Correct. Correct the mundo. You are the winner today, Lewis. Hang on just a second. We're going to put oh, you. Oh, yes. yes. I would like to talk to you. Sinisego. Uh, you, Tiki, And how you get that opera? How did I get the opera? We went to Google and we got it. <laughs> I wish I could remember what the name of it was. Um, <laughs> yes, go to the internet and Google it. And that's how I, that's how we got the... But the, I don't have it. Uh, okay, thank okay. you. Okay, all right. Ha- okay, hang on the line, Lewis. We'll be right back to you. And uh, there you thank go. You. There is Lewis. And this is Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Radio. 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2. Stand by. More Tech Talk in just a minute. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And, of course, this was the week of Pi Day. I know. Before you launch into that, this is funny. This just happened on Periscope. Somebody says, hmm, both Doc and Jim wear black jackets. (laughs) No, you're wearing. You're actually wearing a navy blue jacket. Yeah. I'm wearing a, a a charcoal quarter zip sweater. So that's the fashion yeah, show. Exactly. For today. There you right. go. All right. So so Pi Day was this week. Pi Day, which Pi Day, of course, is March 14th because the numbers there are three one four. Those are the first three digits of Pi. And one one day we actually. Here it is. Oh. It's the Pi song. You, oh you, yes. Which you can, Oh, there yeah. you go. All right. So you can continue talking about pie while we listen to this. Oh, yeah. I sing this every morning. Do it's, you really? It's one of my favorite while you're songs. Brushing your teeth. Oh, yeah. That's right. For that, I sing that for the, for the two-minute brush, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The earliest evidence, written evidence of pie dates back to 1900 B.C. Both the Babylonians... And the Egyptians had a rough idea of the value. Now, you know what pi is. It just comes right out of nature. It's the the ratio of the circumference of a circle divided by the diameter. Mm -hmm. Circumference divided by the diameter, and that's a a constant number. It turns out it's an irrational number. That means you can't express it as a fraction. 
And if you express it as a digital, you will not get a repeating sequence of digits. Hmm. It's irrational. Both the Babylonians and the Egyptians had a rough idea of the value. Now, the Babylonians thought that pi was 25 over 8. Now, that would be 3.125, so that's not really quite right, but it was close. The Egyptians estimated it to be 256 over 81. Now, that's a little closer. That's 3.16, so that... So that got uh, that a little bit closer, but it, but of course we know the first three digits are three point one four. Yes. So they they even got the third digit wrong. So the but the Egyptians were getting closer and closer. Now the Greek mathematician Archimedes considered it to be uh, you know cons- was considered the first to get a an, an accurate estimate of pi. Now he did this by using polygons. He put he 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 put one polygon inside the circle. And he put, which was uh, inscribed within the circle where the points of the polygon hit the circle. And, it, and he put another one outside, a circumscribed polygon where the middle of each side touched the circle. And then what he did, you could simply calculate the, uh, the, the, uh, the, 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 the size of the polygon, the, the length of the sides of the polygon, simply by adding them up. And so, and you knew that pi was somewhere between the, the length of the inner polygon and the outer polygon. And then he simply added more and more sides to the polygons. So he took a 96-sided polygon, inscribed one, circumscribed one, and he calculated that pi felt between 3.1408 and 3.14285. So that was actually pretty good. And then the Chinese mathematician, he went even further than that. He calculated it using a 12,000-sided polygon. Wow. And he came up with an approximation that it was 355 over 113, the ratio. Now, the, the most accurate calculation that was done before computers was done by Madhavan Sagamamam. Well done. <laughs> Sangamagaman. Sangamagaman. Yeah. He calculated yeah. it to 13 places. Now, he f- discovered that pi could be expressed as an infinite series, and you would add a fraction, then subtract a fraction, add a fraction, subtract a fraction. And he figured out how to do this. He figured out this series, and he was able to calculate pi to 13 decimal places. Wow. This was before computers. Now, the, the, the idea of pi using the symbol pi was not really proposed until 707 by the Welsh, by the Welsh mathematician William Jones. He used pi... And the reason that he used the word pi is that that was the first letter, that, that was the letter pi, that was the first letter in the Greek word for perimeter. Didn't That's where that. it came from. And so there you go. And now they've calculated pi out to billions of places using the computer, so that's no longer a big deal anymore. So there you go. Everything you wanted to know about Hi. Excellent. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2. Our stream is down today, but you can still either watch or listen to. Well, if you had your eyes open, you could both watch and listen to us on Periscope. Download the Periscope da- device to your app, uh, your app to your device and follow us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Let's talk about this Halo Drive. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a way to accelerate spaceships to near the speed of light. Now, a new study... This was really a clever idea. Envisions firing a laser beam that would curve around a black hole and come back with added energy to help propel the spacecraft near the speed of light. And what you're basically doing is you are setting up a, um, a sail, an optical sail, and when the light hits the sail, it pushes the spacecraft. Now, the, the study's author, David Kipping, is an astrophysicist at Columbia University in New York. He came up with the idea of the halo drive... When he started thinking through the gamer, he said I had to come up with a gamer's mindset. How can I work around the, the laws of the universe? I mean, the key challenge when go, in doing, you know, flying rockets around space is that if you want to really accelerate them to that speed, it takes a lot of propellant. And that makes the rocket heavier. And then it takes even more propellant to accelerate that heavier rocket, so then you make a bigger rocket with more propellant, which is then heavier, and it just goes on and on and on. And, and it becomes increasingly difficult to carry enough fuel to do that acceleration. So we have to find a way to accelerate around the universe at near the speed of light without a lot of fuel. Now, he remembered what, they, what spacecraft use as a slingshot maneuver. We're, we do this all the time now. We're, we basically go close to a planet— we whip around the planet, and it and the spacecraft accelerates, and it and it and it shoots out into space. So we've done a number of this slingshot maneuvers around, you know, around planets. And what's actually happening there is you're extracting energy from the planet as you do the slingshot, and uh, and then you you can accelerate the spacecraft using the planet. And that has been done quite often. So he got the idea that maybe we could do this with black holes, and treat them like a gravitational mirror. Now, black holes, of course, are this, you know, that, you know, if you get too close to the black hole, nothing escapes, not even light. But what you do is you send a laser, you send light beam from a laser very close to the black hole, but not in the black hole. And then the, the, the force, the gravitational force of the black hole will bend the light and it will do a slingshot around the black hole and come back. This is the idea, sort of like 
a satellite going mm-hmm. near a planet and slingshotting. So the light will go around the black hole and come back with more energy and will actually be extracting energy from the black hole when the light comes back with more energy. And then that that light beam would hit some sort of sail that would then push the spacecraft. So that was his proposal. And he's calling that a halo drive because the light beam going around the um, black hole would look like a halo. And so the faster the black hole moves, the more energy the halo drive could draw from it. So he he was doing calculations based on a pair of black holes orbiting around each other at relativistic speeds. Now, he estimates there are about 10 million black hole pairs in the Milky Way. So, so you can, um, you know, so there'd be enough black holes to work with. Now, the only limitation is you can't be more, you have to be close enough to the black hole for this to work. You can't be further than 50 times the black hole's diameter. So you've got to be relatively close. But once you're near a black hole, you can extract energy from it using this way. So even to do more work on it, but that was a clever idea. Yes, so absolutely. I thought we would just talk about that. Cool. Good news today. Good news. Quantum computers may not break the encryption of the Internet for decades. You know, there was a, um, a problem. Quantum computers are so fast that the, uh, that the encryption that the Internet is based on uh, which is, you know, determining what two prime numbers have been multiplied together in order to get some giant number. Um, that encryption algorithm may be easily solved with a quantum computer because they process so fast. And people were afraid that if the if the encryption on the internet were broken, we would have a huge problem. Well, a research paper by the by a, by a, by a firm called Cryptera, which is a uh, which is a uh, an encryption company, they said it could take decades before quantum computers can reach this point. Mm. Right now, the Grover algorithm, which is one of the algorithms that that, that would, might be used to break the, uh, the encryption key in quadratic time, this would. what that means is, is that a quantum computer could make a 128-bit symmetric encryption key in the same time that it would take a classic computer to break a 64-bit symmetric encryption key. That means it would be several hundred CPU cores doing uh, processing for a year. So that's really still a pretty good, a pretty high bar. Now, according to the paper, breaking the AES-120 encryption would require a quantum computer with 200 by 2959 logical qubits. Breaking an AES-256 would take would require 6600 qubits. Now, the Shore algorithm that can break asymmetric encryption. Uh, needs twice as many qubits as the key size. So a, a 2048-bit RSA key would require a 4096-qubit computer. Now, the issue, though, is is that you need error correction code built into this. So you need more. So to get more qubits, you need more physical devices. So it would turn out that, uh, according to the Cryptera paper, if you'd want to create a universal computer with 1,000 qubits, qubits, it would require millions of physical qubits if they're going to use the error correction code. And he doesn't believe we're going to get millions of physical qubits for at least a couple of decades. So it's going to be a while before we break the encryption code of the Internet, which is good news. Uh, But still, the National Institute of Standards and Technology is working on finding the next quantum, the next uh, encryption standard, which is resistant to quantum computers. They've already put out a competition and, uh, and now they've just announced phase two of the competition. The agency selected 26 
of the initial 69 algorithms for phase two, and they're going to put those to the test to see which one of those can withstand optical computing. I think that's a very, very important um, development, that a very, very important project that NIST is working on. Artificial intelligence has finally hit the fast food drive through This is interesting. Yeah. Denver-based, a Denver-based food chain, Good Times, is now using artificial intelligent voice assistant in place of cashiers in their drive through service. The restaurant's using artificial intelligence systems created by the company Valiant AI to help employees manage the restaurant more efficiently. This trend will actually eliminate jobs. So basically you talk to a robot, make the order— and then it's just – and then uh, that you're not talking to a person. Wow. The soft it, – it'd just be like talking to Siri or talking to uh, – Or Hal. Or Hal. Or, <laughs> or Hal, yeah. The software will be used to increase input and reduce mistakes commonly made by employees. So you can see how the, you can see how the next step, step that's going to be, once you talk to it, they'll just have a little conveyor belt that will just put everything in the bag and ship it out. You're, you're, you know, nothing – you know, there may, may, maybe no person will even touch it. You remember when we talked about the automatic hot dog machine? Yes. <laughs> this this is the this is that gone man. It it could be. Mm-hmm. Now there is a, another problem on the market that uh, that actually I was not aware of, but these ticket scalper bots are flooding the market. Hmm. This is a real problem, according to new research out. Forty percent of all online ticket bookings are now done by automated software. So they can be resold more for later. There's a huge amount of money in grabbing up tickets to popular events and then reselling them. There have been some rock concerts, for instance, that sold out like in two minutes. Those were all bots. And then they put them on the ticket scalper sites and they and they sell the tickets for five times more. So that's why they do that, uh, the the uh, capture uh, at the uh, when, before you do the purchase. That's why they got the mm-hmm. capture because they're, they're trying to stop that. Distal Networks warned that 70, 78% of the bots are sophisticated, so sophisticated they're not detectable. They emulate the same behaviors as humans, so it makes it extremely difficult to cut them off. 40% suggest you still have a good chance to grab a ticket for your favorite band. Uh, but that's, you know, it just depends on the average. That's the average case. It doesn't depend. What, wow, it's we're all ready to go. Yeah. So these things, So now there's a real pressure on these online ticket vendors to try to block these bots because it's not fair to the regular guy. Yep. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. And then check out the programs at Stratford University by going to www.stratford.edu. Tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.